Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Today is a very, very special day for multiple reasons. Um, our guest today, you know, they, they always told me growing up that if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Well, our guest today, he's probably in the wrong room because he is going to be the smartest guy in this room. Uh, we are honored to have with us uh, Professor Dr. Anthony Jack, and, and he has a BA in psychology and philosophy from Oxford University and a PhD in experimental psychology from University College London. Now, he went on to train then in cognitive neuroscience at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, UCL in London, and the Department of Neurology, Washington University and St. Louis Medical School. Now, check this out. Since 2007, he's been leading the Brain, Mind, and Consciousness Lab at Case Western Reserve University. He's also become the research director of the Inamori International Center for Ethics and Excellence. So when I said you're the smartest guy in the room, Tony, you are the smartest guy in the room. So welcome on the Driving Change podcast. Well, thank you for that introduction that I can't really live up to. But actually, I think a theme we'll explore is, um, is that it doesn't always help to be so smart. So there's, a, there's certainly a difference between being practical and being able to motivate people and work well with people and being smart. And uh, that, that goes right back to Immanuel Kant, who made a distinction between theoretical and practical reason, which we, we see played out in the brain. Absolutely. And, and, I, and my, my, my audience knows this, that everything I just said about you, they could care less. They don't even know what I, even, even 20 seconds later, they couldn't tell you one place that you actually studied. So that's great. Now, there's a third guest today. There's a third person on the show today. And my audience knows this gentleman, but today's special because Dan Doherty, uh, my partner here at Brain Trust, is now officially Dr. Dan Doherty. And the reason I asked Dan to be on today with this is because, uh, Tony, you were actually on his dissertation committee, and Dan just defended his dissertation yesterday and officially has been approved for his doctorate. And so it's perfect timing to celebrate this for a few minutes together. So, Dan, we love you. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you, Jeff. Dr. Dan. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. It's uh Really, this thing couldn't have aligned better on timing. So I'm super glad that you're here. And, you know, having you both not only on my committee, but also having you as a professor, you know, there's so much what you guys are even just starting to tip on about being able to make a difference for people in the way that they interact and communicate. People are going to pick up a lot. I think a lot of things that are valuable in the way they run their day-to-day life. So um, it's been an honor working with you and glad you're on the podcast. Well, likewise, I think you're... Your dissertation really picked up on a very significant practical way in which this tension um, that I like to talk about in the brain um, is is played out into pra- in practice in corporations all over the world uh, in a, in what is a currently very counterproductive way. So I hope we can dig into that a little bit. All right, before we move on with you two on, I got to hold on a second. I got to turn down the driving change nerd meter because it's spiking off the charts with your PhDs on here. So let me just turn that down just a little bit so we can actually. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> I, lo- I love you guys. So, so here we go. Now, 
Tony, your research, I think, and I don't want to, I'm not just trying to blow smoke. It, 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 it's, it's some of the most profound research that I've read when it comes to helping people understand the nuances of the brain relative to how we process information to make decisions. And that's what we're all about here. And, and so tell us a little bit about what you found in your research relative to these two distinct areas of the brain, the nature of the brain and how it, it really can't activate both of them at the same time. Can you give us a little bit of a, of a layman's terms, what you found in your initial research on empathic versus analytical and, and give that to, to us in a way that we can understand? Yeah. I, I mean, one thing I'd like to say is that in a way, my research is very simplistic. Now, that may seem odd talking about the brain, but one of the concerns I've had about a lot of um, ways in which people in the popular press talk about neuroscience is that they're making a lot of a story about something that's very complicated and um, where all the details haven't been worked out. What, what really my research, I've been in the brain game for a while, right? So I really saw it take off in the 90s, um, and I was at a major center in Europe, and then I went to a major center in the USA. And um, I mean, a lot of brilliant people doing this research, but but a lot of that, a lot of the stories they've told have been, um, they've, they've been stories that are sort of provisionally true, but um, they're, they're, they're often making a lot out of um, the observations they're making. The story I've got is really a story about, like, if we back up and you, you just look at what, what do we now know about the brain from 30,000 feet? We've got this brilliant new technology that, ex, that exploded in the 90s, right? Um, functional magnetic resonance imaging has really been the main leader. We had another brain imaging called um, positron emission tomography that, was, that kind of came in just a bit before that and overlapped. But now we have you know, hundreds of thousands of studies giving us this glimpse of the brain in action that we never had before, the human brain in action, the normal human brain, right? Like before we had to rely on animal studies, which involved um, putting in electrodes or, or limited studies on people who had um, either brain damage or, or were getting surgery. So now we get this massive new window on the brain. And, and my big story is about Let's just say, like, what's the biggest thing you see? And the biggest thing you see is that there is this surprising division in human reason. I, I like to talk about this as being between two networks of brain areas. So this is very big scale stuff, right? People are usually, they'll talk about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or they'll talk about the precuneus. Those are parts of these two networks. These networks are really large-scale things. And um, one of these networks is what we see as being involved in kind of what you, what you think of as being reasoning, like logic, science, being rational, um, figuring out puzzles which are not social in nature. And then to the surprise of, and, and really psychology did not properly anticipate this, there's a completely different network, which you see comes up when you're trying to understand how other people are thinking, when you're trying to understand someone else's point of view, but also when you're trying to think with feelings. So I call that empathic reason, and I call the first one analytic reason. And these, these two types of, of reasoning you can think of as being associated with being rational versus being reasonable. 
right? So often the person who's the most rational one, the smartest guy in the room at some level, is not very reasonable, right? Um, and uh, someone who's very reasonable, uh, people often talk about them as having soft skills, like, you know, in a rather demeaning way, right? And there's, there's some, something fair about that, because actually when you, when you bring in those soft skills, when you bring in that ability to take the perspective of someone else, you're turning off the analytic logic areas of your brain. And, and vice versa, when you're engaged, we call it hard, cold logic. Because when you're turning on those brain areas, you kind of turn off the brain areas that help you understand someone else's perspective and point of view. Yeah, this is really fascinating stuff because we, we, we constantly tell a lot of our clients, and, and I, want, I love your perspective on this, that the human brain biologically is built initially for self-preservation and, and survival. And so when you start to lay on just the core root elements of self, we call it self-preservation orientation. You wake up in the morning and you're in self-preservation mode. And then your brain starts to do this interplay between these two networks, if you will. Um, and when it comes to decision-making with things like trust, you, you can have a logical approach to trust, which might be more credibility from someone's perspective. But then you have this other thing of trust that's more this intuitive, almost personal level of trust. It must be activating, you know, the empathic side of the network. But when it comes to self-preservation, how much does our, our instinct for self-preservation impact the interplay between these two networks? Yeah, I, I mean, I like that way of framing it. Of course, um, when you think of how the brain evolved, you, you also think not just of self-preservation, but preservation of your genes. So the ability to reproduce and look after your kids. And there already you're seeing a foothold for something that's rather more empathic. Well, of course, what marks us out as a species from at least most others is that um, our children are vulnerable to a very uh, late age. We have to look after them. Um, how well they develop in part depends on how well we can take their perspective and uh, help to develop them. So, so there's already some evolutionary advantage to propagating your genes to having this empathic point of view. But the other point about self-preservation is that while when, you, when one puts it like that, one thinks of, of that defensive reaction, which is sort of associated with a fight or flight response, which of course pushes us into this analytic, more rational way of thinking. But the real bottom line of self-preservation is uh, we're a deeply social species. The way you preserve yourself is by having strong social connections. And um, that, that's, that's how we really survive. It's not how we often react to a, a moment of threat, but it's, it's how we build up the, the capital, the social capital that um, really determines more than anything our success and our survival. What are your thoughts on, on the same vein? My openness to change relative to my, in, my environment, relative to how I'm perceiving a person who I'm interacting with, based on how they're communicating what they've activated. So for instance, if I'm on a sales call and I'm a salesperson and I'm talking to, let's say an executive, and if I'm communicating a lot of analytical information, I'm clearly activating their analytical network. But how do I know, how does that CEO, because our thought is, is not until that CEO has this instinct that I'm actually a trustworthy person, will they start to activate and believe that the analytical information is trustworthy itself. Is there a play there from a, do I trust this person first 
them? Do I trust the information? Is, is that a seesaw back and forth between those two networks? Yeah, I think that's that's deeply true. And in fact, I think we've got a little bit, we, we've lost our bearings a little bit we, we, when we come to emphasize data and facts. I mean, all data and facts end up getting selected out and having at least some degree of bias, even if they are stand alone by themselves as, as, as verifiably true. Why are you paying attention to that data and fact? And um, this, this is certainly an issue you need, that you need trust before you're even going to accept that, that, that those are the data and facts you should be paying attention to. So I think it's really, there's really many ways in which we see that it's the empathic way of thinking that comes first. In fact, that's the network that really is the true central executive of your brain. Um, the empathic network is the one that lies at the, at the central core of all your network hubs in the, in the brain, and it passes off tasks to the analytic network. Mm. And I think there's a real way in which we've, we've come to mistake the, 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 sort of the analytic network for being the true master. It's not the true master of the situation, and it's not the foundation to um, teamwork. It's not the foundation to getting things done. The foundation is the, this ability to be relational and to and to discern who you can trust, and then when you have that, as you say, you create this openness to change. And then, and then, if I'm not mistaken, then the, the analytical network can kick in as a as a justifier and a validator. Um, is that right? Yes, I mean, of course, the danger in that is it, it, it's uh, many many of us have a talent at rationalizing almost anything. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, we can all pick out facts that. Um, that meet what we want to do. So uh, there's a way I have of putting this. I don't know if it's it's going to seem helpful, which is to say there's another way of thinking of this tension between different types of reason, and that's to think of what is a reason. A reason is something that motivates action, and we have put so much emphasis, we do tend to put so much emphasis on what are the facts, but, you know, facts don't motivate action all by themselves. There needs to be some orientation, some desire, some something that then makes those facts matter in a way that's going to motivate action. And that's really where the empathic network comes in. And, and where the empathic network comes in, in terms of um, helping to motivate us in kind of like, as you say, in a sales call, is what is the story? The facts are all very well, but the facts get situated in a story. And it's actually that narrative arc that is what really does the moving, right? The facts are, they're, they're kind of just helpers for that moving. But then why do so many people, leaders, parents, sales professionals, marketers, why do they try to use the facts and data almost like a, uh, a decision-making club? Uh, meaning they just like to bang you over the head with data to try to convince, to bludgeon you into making, to taking action when you're, you're telling us is clearly the research to this point shows that it's the opposite order. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a very interesting question how our culture has come to be so focused on this, the facts, the science, the analytic side of things, and seems to have left aside the importance of our relationships and, and the stories that tie us together. Um, I, and I'm not in, I don't think it's easy to explain entirely. Obviously, science has been very successful. People are very impressed by it. 
We've also had a lot that's undermined our social connections with others, um, just in terms of social changes, people moving around, now technology. Um, but I think, I think one other way of thinking of it is it's a bit like water to a fish. You know, our relationships, um, who we trust, what, what the emotional background to everything we're doing tends to be something that we don't attend to. It's like, it's not the figure, it's the ground. It's the background to it all. And we're so used to just attending to the figure um, that we, we, we learn to ignore it, uh, what that background is. But I think if you look at where we're at as a society today, you can, there's really a, a stronger impetus to pay attention to that, like that we're looking after the relational side of things. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I love your, you can correct me on this for, for future conversations if I'm saying this the wrong way, but I like to tell, a lot of times tell our clients that problems naturally evoke emotion or the empathic network, but products naturally trigger the analytical network. And if you're trying to elicit change, you have to actually use that to your point, the, 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 the spark of change happens in the empathic network. So if I'm not talking to you about something that's evoking emotion in, in the empathic network, I can bludgeon your analytical network all day long, but it may not, it may not activate change. However, if I start with something attractional and emotional and empathic, then I can use the data to actually validate and give you the vehicle to say, I'm justifying change the way I feel. Is that right? That's, that's for, I mean, and we're working on a paper right now that really illustrates that point. So this is kind of, there's been a number of studies that have looked at giving people health information in the brain scanner, right? So they, they show them some, something that's aimed to persuade them right? Like don't smoke anymore. Or actually sometimes it's more trivial than that. It's like put on sunscreen or, you know, engage in more healthy exercise. So they give people these, these uh, persuasive messages. And um, then they look at people six months later and they, uh, they say, okay, so how much did people actually, how, to what degree were they persuaded? And uh, we managed to gather together a, a quite a good number of studies that looked at questions like this. And what you see very clearly is that it's, it's activity in the empathic network that predicts sustained change. Um, and indeed, what we also see is that when you give people facts, it's not just that you're failing to hit the right point. When you give people facts or you overload people, particularly with facts, you, turn, you make them turn off their empathic brain area. So this is this tension that uh, I was talking about before between these two networks. And so it, facts are way worse than you might have thought. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, we double down on them and we don't realize that it's not just that they aren't helping. They are hindering us from being motivated. Wow. And do you think that, like, I, I'm, I think about the political climate of the world. Uh, it doesn't matter what continent you're on. It's the same. It's the same issue in a different language or a different dialect. Um, is, are we being desensitized almost to know that? Depending on your bias towards a perspective, any information is coming out. And this is obviously we're going to you know, get into the cognitive biases effects. But I, I already know that if so-and-so says something, I don't care what it is, it's wrong. Um, even if they've got a justified randomized study showing, showing that they've proven otherwise, it's wrong. Uh, our society has almost produced that in our, in our culture today, that if, if you don't agree with what I agree with, therefore, I cannot believe anything that you have analytically, empathically, or otherwise. Is that 
Is that is that getting worse? No, I think that's exactly right. The, the, and, and it isn't just America, although America does seem like a notable example of it. But <laughs> but the polarization has become so bad that actually there's some recent studies that show that within politically polarized debates, if you give someone a fact that contradicts their point of view, the long-term effect is actually to make them believe in their point of view more. More. Right. right. So <laughs> this is this is truly frightening. We know some. Now, I mean, if you get into dissonance theory, we can. It's there's ways you can explain how that happens. Um, so, so yeah, we we really have um, some issues there, and I think the key antidote here is that we are not recognizing how important these empathic skills, which I t- I mean in a broad sense, and and in particularly in this context, to include good storytelling. So we are not recognizing just how important those skills are. And we're not recognizing how important it is that people take the perspective of others. And that is at the core, really the core of this type of empathic thinking. It's the type of activity that most clearly activates this empathic network, is if you get someone to to look at something from someone else's point of view. How are they thinking and feeling about this? And I think... um, in, in some way or another, we seem to have lost sight of just how important that is in a leader. Um, so we're not, we're not selecting for it. And um, some of the work we've done in my laboratory has been looking at peop- how different sorts of skills work in people. So individual differences in ability in different areas. And what we see is that the higher your, your analytic intelligence tends to mean you have a slightly lower so empathic ability and if and vice versa if you if you're really high in empathic concern for others really good at perspective taking you tend to have slightly lower analytic intelligence now one of the big social changes that's happened over the last century has been the rise of the the, the concept of intelligence right so intelligence testing is everywhere now i mean i work in a university that's very clear but um, we, 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 we like to judge people by a bottom line. What was your performance? Let me, let me give you a narrow task and then assess how well you did on it. Now that tends, whether it's an intelligence test or whether it's just a performance metric in how you do one job or, or another, um, that sort of technical performance leans on analytic intelligence. If that's the criterion you use to promote people, you're selecting people who are going to have, on average, slightly lower empathy mm. than if you actually looked for empathic leadership skills in them. So wow. I think we've we've come as a society without realizing it because we don't realize we haven't really appreciated that intelligence isn't a unitary thing and that there's this tension. So we've come to kind of privilege one side of it. And we can really see that we're in a little bit of a mess because of that right now. <laughs> a little bit. I'm starting to think that narcissism is as contagious as the coronavirus. But that's right, here, right. <laughs> yes, right. That's here nor there. Um, all right, I want to pivot here in our remaining time. I'm going to ask you a question about some other work that you did uh, in, in your research, which I find extremely fascinating because I happen to be a man of faith. Um, you know, Immanuel Kant, I think he's the one who said that I had to deny my knowledge in order to make room for my faith. And you did a lot of work on this, on this, this tension between is, is someone who's spiritual, non-scientific, or someone who's scientific can't be spiritual. 
and you, you, you took it, the, took those, and probably I'm wording it correct, incorrectly, but you took those, the tension between science and religion or faith, and you did a lot of work on it, and, the, and what you found was interesting and maybe a surprise to a lot of people. So can you tell us a little bit about some of that work? Yeah, it does, it does um, surprise people. It surprises a number of my more liberal friends, I would say, um, who, many of whom have very bad associations with religion. Um, and we could talk about why that is, actually. There's a whole history to religion, particularly in the United States. That, that um, w- So I, I wouldn't say this isn't a simple endorsement of being religious, but what we do notice is that um, people who tend to believe in God or believe in a universal spirit, that was our more kind of general version um, of being spiritual, they, they tend to be higher in empathy. And that was something that we predicted. Um, You also see, and and a number of other researchers have shown, that people who have more analytic intelligence tend to just a little bit less belief in God. And this is this we we um, see this as reflecting this tension between these two ways of thinking, where really I would say both the appeal of religion and the the good work. It, it often does do, not always, not, not in, in the case of kind of fundamentalism and extremism, but the good work it often does is to help develop this empathic way of thinking. Um, and that's really what's drawing people, many people to it, and it's what it's reinforcing. So I, I think it's, you know, I don't think it's any mistake that people have a strong association between religion and moral development um, because there is, I think, spirituality um, really links those two. And one way in which you can think of this is that the spiritual is really placing a different emphasis from the the material. So analytic thinking or that rational way of thinking is a very scientific, materialistic, let's focus on the bottom line, focus on the facts, the science way of thinking. Um, being spiritual is sort of saying, okay, that may be okay. I, you know, not, not denying that, but right now I'm just going to put that to the side and I'm going to focus on something else. And I think actually that the sorts of supernatural beliefs, um, that, that come with religion are a way of helping us out of a materialistic way of thinking and into a way of relating that help that can help develop our, our sort of empathic side. It's fascinating to me. And we, we could have like a series of six episodes of this podcast talking about moral relativism and all the different things that religious does, religious do, uh, that the religious does good and bad versus the atheist and the agnostic and all that. But I find it fascinating personally because I know people on both sides of this, right? People that are, are agnostic or, or atheist even though, by the way, that is a belief system, um, and then those who have a spiritual belief system. And I think that that tension that you're, you found in your work around in, I, the empathy to me is that, is that I recognize, I have enough self-awareness to recognize that the world isn't just about me, that there's a bigger purpose happening around me, and I'm just someone here who finds that if I can find my purpose, it's going to be helping other people. And then that almost, does that almost fuel more empathy? Like does empathy beget empathy? Uh, is it a muscle? Yeah, I think we can go in a virtual, virtuous or, or a more vicious cycle, certainly. Um, 
Yeah, I think what I don't like is this idea that there's some terrible clash between science and religion. First of all, this is just historically completely false. I mean, could not be more wrong. And where it, where it really comes from, I think, was a movement in religion, which occurred in some ways for very good reasons, because there had been some sort of degeneracy of, of, uh, in, in religious practice, um, to be very literal. And this, to me, is, is if you think, if you believe like I do, that religion and science kind of map onto these two different ways of thinking in the brain, then the idea that you should understand religious parables, a religious scripture in a literal way is just a complete mistake. And, and so I, I really, I get upset when people think that, that there's a clash here. R religious, religious scripture is, and, and the parables we learn, they're tremendously helpful in terms of helping us get into a way of thinking about other people that is fundamentally incompatible with scientific thinking. But that doesn't mean religion and science are incompatible. In fact, that actually means they can live side by side. One helps us with one type of thinking that's essential to our function. The other type helps us with another type of thinking that's essential to our function. And what we know is that healthy people and people with higher IQ they're continually cycling between these two networks and these two ways of thinking. And in fact, if you get stuck in one of these ways of thinking, that's a, that's a sign of ill health. And we, you actually see it in all number of mental disorders that there's some disruption of this cycling between these two networks. So that seeing there is a, cl a clash, seeing a polarity is really failing to respect what I call the mind's essential tension. That is, our mind was constructed in such a way that we're supposed to live in a dynamic balance between these two ways of thinking. We apply one for some sorts of problems, another for another, other sorts of problems, and we're continually trying to see the world through these two somewhat incompatible lenses. If you want to, if you want to live a good life and you want to see everything in the world, I think you need to be able to put on both of those lenses, and you need to accept that Sometimes they're going to clash a little. Sometimes they'll rub up against each other. But if you can find ways of reconciling those two different ways of thinking, then you're really going to get a good solution. If you double down on something that only works from one of those ways of thinking, you're headed for trouble. Oh, that's good. So the mind's essential tension. Well, that, that sounds like it'd be a good title or something. I don't know um, <laughs> uh, if, if I were an author. But anyways, so as we start to close this thing down, the folks who are listening today, you know, they're, obviously they're always asking, so what? Okay. These guys got on here and rambled on about this, that, and the other network and that network. But what does that mean to me? And, and in my, in, in my heart of hearts, I'm a firm believer that now that I think the science yours and other work is backing this up is when you can think about things from an others, an, another's perspective, it will naturally activate and reinforce the muscle of your empathic network and, but that doesn't mean it's at the expense of the analytical network. It just means that you've learned how to control the seesaw between the two. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right. And I think the other point when I do empathy workshops, I really try to emphasize is that to see something from someone else's perspective does not commit you to agree with them. And it does not commit you to any particular path of action. It's something you do 
first and then you come back to yourself and you decide the path of action. So it isn't, doesn't mean you're abandoning the analytic point of view. You're not abandoning the facts. Um, and I think that's often a barrier for people. They, they seem to think that to merely see something from someone else's point of view, they're resistant to it. They don't want to see that side. Uh, that's huge. And I think if anybody can take anything away from this today is that when you're you're activating, and again, you correct me when I'm wrong here, when you're activating the empathic network, you yourself become more open to new ideas and to change. But if you're only driving down the analytical network, you've already closed yourself off to new ideas and change, and you're almost in more convincing mode with facts. And when you're listening for information, it's the same thing. Is that right? That, that tension there? Well, uh, you know, there's many problems if you double down on analytics. One is that you're not going to convince anyone of anything. I know you think you will, right? <laughs> but actually, the best way to convince someone else of something is to listen to them first <laughs> and then to tailor your message and to show them understanding. That really opens people's eyes more than anything else. Um, the other thing that you're doing, if you keep going into the analytic network, is you're messing yourself up. And it isn't just about being open to change. It's been about regulating yourself and maintaining your own health. In fact, it's the empathic network that's associated with being able to regulate stress and long-term with, um, with, with actually better mortality rates, right? So, you know, there's a, there's a reason why what maybe one of the most notable stats is that being religious tends to be associated on average with living around eight to 10 years longer than not being religious. Now, that's not a good reason to be religious, right? <laughs> it is a good outcome. Um, it's a good outcome. It's just yeah, not a good reason. It's a great outcome. And, and I don't think you don't have to find that through religion, but, but, you know, loneliness kills. Having good social relations and good varied social relationships, which are positive in nature and supportive in nature, is associated with health more strongly than any other factor that people think matters. It's more, it's even stronger than smoking, which is the worst thing you can do that you could easily hop, pop out to the shops and do to your health right now. But um, certainly much stronger than how much you exercise, whether you're overweight, etc. These factors just pale to insignificance compared with the self-regulation advantages and uh, the, the sort of the ability to tolerate and regulate stress that comes with having an effective empathic relationship. So as we close then, do you have any tips for folks on how do they get better at this? Well, I think reading good literature um, and uh, watching good movies, ones that actually require a little concentration instead of you just zone out in front of, like where you have to follow the storyline of people. Good art, you know, in that sense. Um, those are both ways of, of, of cultivating empathy. Um, and, you know, if you want to go further, there are, there are plenty of books. I think Walking in Nature is actually a, a, a effective, um, find, finding an agreeable spiritual community. Um, so there are a number of things to do, but, you know, I don't want to give it all away. No one will sign up to my Empathy One Day workshop. <laughs> Good point. <clears throat> but I think this is so important for folks. I think they hear a lot of this and go, well, great. Why well, Isn't my brain hardwired now for this is just the way I am empathetically and this is just the way I am analytically? But the reality is, is no, it's, it's a little bit like a muscle. You, you've got to be able to figure out a way to exercise it to, to grow it. And, and I think it's about being more mindful um, consciously mindful of your unconscious behaviors relative to empathy con con you know, compared to the analytical side of it. That's my take on it. 
Uh, but it's it's a challenge because so many of us are on a hamster wheel. Yeah. And you know, our stress levels are up. Cortisol rules the day. Oh, throw a virus, throw a pandemic on top of that. So now I'm in self-preservation mode, even heightened sense. And so it's almost the the, the universe has almost conspired against our willingness and ability to increase our our self-actualization of increasing our empathy by thinking of others when we're in this heightened sense of, of chaos, right? Yes. Well, the body the body has many polarities, uh, breathing in, breathing out. Um, you know, you want you want to keep it in balance. You don't. I don't suppose you would think that um, that your right leg, which most people's right leg, is slightly better coordinated than their left. So maybe you should just go to the gym and work on your right leg. You know, that's a ridiculous strategy, right? right. You know, you need balance. And um, actually, all the all the physiological data from neuroscience suggests it's just the same with the empathy and analytic networks. Mm. You need some balance. You might have one that's a bit more acute than the other rather like your right or left hand but you need you need to build up both to some degree otherwise you're really going to be hampered because uh, the majority of complex tasks require both wow that's fantastic so uh, where can our audience go to learn more about you to maybe sign up for your empathy workshops just to learn in general about what you have to offer where can they go to find more uh yeah i have a i have a website brainmindandconsciousness.com and um for for the workshop, um, the Weatherhead Executive Education, you can find it on that. Perfect. And we'll have those links on the landing page for everybody to go directly to. But I wanted to hear the out of the Oracle's mouth where he would direct people. So uh, it's been a privilege and an honor. I've been looking so forward to this day, Tony. Um, I'm a big fan of what you do. And now that I know that you've had some influence on Dan, it'll make our company better and smarter just with an association to you. So thank you for the work you're putting out in the world in general. Uh, but more importantly, thank you for the influence you're having on us and, and our company as well. So thanks for being a guest. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.